Thanks, Chris. Well, hello, good morning. It's good to be with you in worship today. Uh, my name is Abby Odio. I'm a pastor here of Teaching and Formation. Uh, greeting to those of you who are joining us online as well. We're so glad to have you. We are, like Chris said, in the final weeks of a series we've been in all summer, studying the fruit of the Spirit. If you've been with us along the way, you'll notice we've taken sort of an in-depth look um, at each particular expression or dimension of the fruit that Paul speaks about and names in that text from Galatians 5. Uh, those are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. And as we come to the end of this series, we're gonna shift our focus from kind of what those look like to uh, this question of how. And as we do that, um, we're gonna sort of wonder and become curious about this question. How do we become the sort of people who embody this fruitful way of being in a very broken and hurting and heavy world. That is our calling, that is our task, and it's not easy. So we're gonna pray together as we look at God's word this morning. Loving Father, we um, name that you have indeed called us to a certain way of living in the world, a fruitful way of living in the world, and we name that that world is experiencing great distress. And God, we know that you are a God who loves the nations and we just think of Afghanistan. We think of the women and children and men there who um, lost lives this week. God, we think of the 13 U.S. servicemen who lost their lives. We just are mindful of um, the heartache and the terror that those in Afghanistan must be experiencing in this moment. We ask that your spirit would come near to them God, we think of people that we know who are connected to our church, who are living in um, New Orleans in this moment in time, just waiting for a big storm to come. God, be with them. Um, and then in the midst of all of this, in this moment, you call us to be a particular kind of person, a person of light and life and fruit. So God, in these moments, we take seriously that calling and ask indeed that you would shape us, that we would Ah, man, that this would be the most important work of our life. God, help us, guide us in that. We need your help and guidance. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I unexpectedly had a chance to learn uh, quite recently about fruit and kind of where fruit comes from. Um, I mean, I know where fruit comes from, but I traveled just last weekend with my family over to Eastern Washington, where an aunt of mine lives in Sela. And we planned this particular trip around when the peaches would be ripe uh, because we were gonna do some fruit canning together. And uh, so last Friday we arrive in Yakima and my aunt immediately loads us all back in the car and drives us to what's called uh, the Lower Valley, which is where there's just kind of farm after farm and uh, fruit orchards there. And so we pull into one of these farms and we're gonna buy our fruit. I'm like so bought in on this experience. We're gonna buy our fruit right from the farmers, like windowberry style. And um, uh, I'm explaining, I'm trying to hype my kids up. I'm like, you guys, this is where our food comes from. Like this is, look around, you know? And uh, my three-year-old son, of course, piped in as he does and said, mom, our fruit doesn't come from here. It comes from QFC. <laughs> like he's, at least he didn't say Met Market, right? But classic Seattle kids. So we get out of the car and the kids are just having a blast. They're running around, they're getting their feet dirty. They're uh, loving the farm. And the farmer, uh, 
who's kind of running the place, he sees this. He says, you know what? Let me take your family for a little tour of the farm. Let me show you around. So we're walking through the orchards, uh, peaches, uh, apples and peaches. And uh, he starts talking about how for their apple orchards, they actually choose a root system. So they uh, plant their apples intentionally. You can do this on a particular root system that is disease resistant. And then he went on to explain how certain pH levels must be maintained in the soil. And he pointed out these long tin things that were uh, like aisles kind of lining each of the, between the trees. My kids thought they were a slip and slide. They weren't. Um, that was an important distinction to make early on. But he said, you know, the, we lay these out and the sun reflects and then it hits the underside of each individual piece of fruit so that the color and the taste will be good. And Hearing all of this, I was just blown away. Um, my mom, who's in the room now, she grew up on a farm. I was raised in a farming community. I know in my head that farming is hard work. Uh, but I was struck in that moment uh, via our farm tour kind of around how intentional and specific that particular work is. And I name this because part of what we've um, studied as we've looked at stories of Jesus this summer is that the fruit-bearing life for which we were created a life that sort of uniquely mirrors the way of Jesus, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen by our willpower. It doesn't just happen because we want it to happen. In the same way that fruit doesn't just appear at QFC, peace and joy and self-control and generosity, they don't just appear in our life, even if we really, really want them to. People have tried this approach and often the result is a sense of kind of deep soul discouragement or, or shame or a sense that I'm not just a good enough Christian. Maybe you've even experienced some of that as I know I have throughout this series. But thankfully, what Paul offers us in this text is, is a way of situating ourselves to be recipients of Christ who alone works profound change. And that way, that intentional path is what I want us to look at together today. And as we do that, I want to frame our teaching around three verbs or sort of postures either implied or specifically stated in the text in these verses from Galatians. And those postures are this, move beyond, crucify, and walk. Move beyond, crucify, and walk. If you read verses eight, uh, 16 through 25 carefully, you'll see that both the words crucify and walk are named outright by Paul. But this first point of moving beyond is is clearly implied. And it's implied through the distinction Paul offers between the flesh and the way of the spirit. Now, as we work to understand this distinction, it's important first of us, uh, first of all, for us to have some sense of what was happening in the Galatia church. See, after becoming a follower of the Jesus way, uh, this guy, Paul, uh, who's a, a big leader in the church, the early church, uh, one of his very first trips as a missionary was to the Roman province of Galatia. Galatia was primarily a Gentile community. This means that the people living there were not Jewish. We read about this in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And the people in Galatia are intrigued by this message of good news, and they become followers of the Jesus way that Paul shares with them. Now, as we read this letter Paul has written to that church, it becomes apparent that there were certain sort of religious Jews who have showed up in Galatia and they are demanding that these new converts follow Jewish law in order to be justified. In, in other words, in order to be thought of as truly part of God's family. Namely, they're insisting that all males be circumcised. And so many of them were. 
ouch. And um, when Paul finds out about this, he's brokenhearted and he's angry. And so he writes this letter. And the source of his anger has to do with this notion of living by the flesh versus living by the spirit. Or you could say moving beyond life in the flesh to life in the spirit. See, when Paul speaks about living by the flesh, he's talking about a life primarily lived on the level of action. The religious Jews who are the object of Paul's anger here are approaching life precisely at this level of the flesh, of action. They're telling the church in Galatia, there are two categories or two ways to live. Either you follow the law and get circumcised, or you follow the the pagan way, the non-religious way, and you're a victim to all human appetites. And in our text for today, Paul exposes the shortcomings of both of these categories. He says, live enslaved to the law, the rules, become a religious legalist concerned only with sin management, and you'll fall into patterns of judgment, secrecy, envy, and blind self-righteousness. However, live enslaved to your natural appetites or whatever you kind of selfishly feel like doing in any given moment, and your life will unfold in a chaotic spiral of a, you know, addiction and strife uncontrolled anger, reckless sexual pursuits, bitterness. And so Paul is saying neither of these options are the way to the fruit producing life. In fact, both are disintegrated from the core of who you are. They address human behavior on a superficial level instead of on the level of the soul. And so Paul passionately encourages them, move beyond these shallow categories and examine your life on this deeper level. Integrate God's spirit into your life on this deeper level. I am infamous in our family, my folks can attest to this, to not paying attention to the warning lights that come on telling me what is wrong with my car. Uh, just a few months ago, I was driving back from Southern California with our children. And because of a set of circumstances, my husband had to fly home You could say got to fly home, but uh, that's neither here nor there. And um, so the kids, myself, were somewhere in Sacramento. Uh, The light comes on in the car, indicating indicating that my tire pressure is low, kind of flashing on the dashboard. Now, this prompts me to feel some like mild anxiety, but I'm not really concerned. And shortly thereafter, my husband, Sam, calls um, to ask how the trip is going from the comfort of our living room. And... Uh, I said, you know, it's going fine, except the tire light just came on the dashboard. So that's a little bit annoying. And he said, yeah, are you going to, you know, what are you going to do about that? And I said very seriously that my plan was to drive until it eventually turned off. And he said also very seriously, that is a terrible idea. So I literally take the next exit, begrudgingly so, and there's a mechanic you know, there who's nice enough to look at the, check the tire pressure for us. And he comes to my window. He says, you know, it all looks great except this tire here. And um, then he read off some number. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know what that means. And he said, let me just say, it's a really good thing that you stopped here. And then he proceeded to thankfully fix the tire. Now I share this story because I think often my approach, and I think our approach to sort of our spiritual life and our story to becoming people that Jesus calls us to be, There's a sense that we can coast along trying as best we can to embody the fruit of the spirit, but doing merely so on this level of action without addressing the deeper level of the soul, which is where God's spirit actually works transformation in us. I can be extremely zealous and energetic and excited about my tire sustaining me for the drive home. I can want it very badly, but unless I address the issue on the right level, no amount of wanting will get me there. It won't make a difference. 
Many of you will remember the teaching Jesus offers in Matthew 5, where he emphasizes a particular law by saying, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. But then he goes beyond that and says, but I tell you, if you're angry with your brother or your sister, you are liable to judgment. See, with this teaching, Jesus is not trying to set an impossible, like outward standard for us. He is inviting folks to look at their life on the right level, to move beyond outward action to this deeper space in all of us from which actions flow. And while this is kind of a seemingly straightforward invitation, this shift in focus and perspective, it can actually be quite difficult. The theologian Ronald Rawlheiser, um, he observes in his writing how we live in a world that tends to keep our attention focused on the surface level. He writes this, the air we breathe today is generally not conducive to interiority and depth. And we see this all the time. I had a, just this week, I had an ad pop up on one of my social media accounts for a t-shirt that said in cute little font, motherhood, fueled by coffee, sustained by wine. Now, if you happen to own that shirt, no judgment. I get it. I really do. Um, But that language speaks to a deeper cultural sentiment that frustrates me. Because here's the thing, it's a sentiment that tells us daily and in a myriad of ways that our struggles in parenthood or work or marriage or singleness have quick fix solutions that often involve feeding appetites that ultimately only deepen our struggle. Drink, hook up, shop, cancel people, lash out. The world is not conducive to interiority or depth. The world does not invite us to pause and check the tire pressure that drives that behavior or that attitude in the first place. And in the same breath, the church has in many ways become a place where the interior life is also not examined. Not our church, of course, but Big C Church. I remember um, growing up in my teenage years, especially, there was this camp I would attend every summer and every year they would have a purity card. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And that notion of purity is just another conversation for another day, but we would sign that little card that said, I will not have sex before I married. What I don't remember, and this was like the high point of the week, right? This was the crescendo moment. What I don't remember was anyone sitting down and talking to me in those spaces about what sex means. What is sex for? Why did God make me as a sexual being? What is the interior journey that myself and so many others were on? It was all about action. Paul's point here and Jesus's point in Matthew 5 is you can follow all the rules and not be transformed. You can be religious and not bear fruit. You can get circumcised and still be a jerk. So that's the first observation. We have to shift our focus and go beyond the level of action to this deeper soul level. Now, once he has our attention there, Paul reminds the church of the fundamental truth, which is this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And this highlights an important observation for us centered on this word, crucify. Oftentimes we'll consider crucify to be a word that's synonymous with death. This is understandable because Jesus certainly died by crucifixion. And so when we read what Paul says here about crucifying our passions and desires, it seems like he is demonizing all human appetites. And for a long time, this was sort of my own understanding of the text. And then a few years back, I was listening to a speaker, a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. And in that talk, Dallas spoke about Galatians 5. And he he changed my perspective. He said, in ancient Rome, when you would crucify a person, they weren't actually dead yet. 
Most would eventually die to be sure, but to crucify something simply meant to take away its power. And that is true. The folks who were publicly crucified by the Romans were considered in some ways to be a threat, in some way to be a threat to Roman rule and order. And so crucifixion was a way of reminding the masses of who was actually in power, Rome, or so Rome thought. Now, all this matters because when, we, uh, because when Paul reminds the church that their passions have been crucified, he is not demonizing human appetites altogether, but he is saying with a strong sense of conviction, they were never meant to be the guiding Lord or power in your life. That's not what they're for. So crucify them, take them out of power. See, what we find when we move beyond the level of action to the level of our souls is that so much of how we function in the world is dictated in part by a kind of our genetics and our predispositions to certain behaviors, but also by our experiences and particularly the pain that we've gone through in our own story because we live in a broken world. There is someone in my life, a person that I'm fairly close to, and he longs to be gentle. But that particular fruit is not in his life. He is not a gentle person. And I know his story. I know that part of why he struggles so much in this area is that gentleness didn't serve him well. He grew up the youngest of many siblings in a context of high material poverty. And he had to fight quite literally just to have a space where anything belonged to him. And so over time, instead of serving him well, his own aggression is so formed in him that it has a power in his life. And that power has wreaked havoc in the relationships he has with people who are closest to him. And this is just one example, but we all have these sort of deeply embedded desires that steer the ship of our story. They have power in a way they were never meant to have power. My husband, Sam, and I recently had a conflict. We call them conversations. Um, and we were working through it together. He brought up something I said that was, was hurtful to him. And he did it in like, you know, the real John Gottman way. Like he said it the right way. He used the right tone. He talked about his feelings, yada, yada. And um, my response was not to listen and understand, but in this particular instance, to actually withdraw from the conversation. Not physically, but emotionally. I sat there in silence and it was not a kind silence. It was an, I, not an I need time to process silence. It was a hurtful and an intentionally hurtful silence. And in the days that followed, I reflected on my response in that moment. I know I'm called to a different way of being, and yet something had power me over me then. I understand Paul's statement in Romans, the thing I want to do not want to do is the thing that I do. And as I reflected on my reaction, I realized how deeply my self-worth is tied to being well-received by Sam, to being well-received by others. And because of that, because that need for approval is, has power in my life, is driving my life, when that's threatened, my response is not the fruit of the Spirit, but this cold, unkind, protective defensiveness. And here Paul speaks to this very dynamic. He says, don't let this particular need for approval drive your life. Crucify that. It's disintegrated and at odds with the life, Abby, that you were created to live. Do it differently. Make room for something else. Crucify it. Now, I want to name that reflecting on our lives at this level, it takes work and energy. It, it takes getting really honest and curious about patterns of misalignment that we see in our own story between the way we're called to live by God and our own way. 
Sometimes it can feel hard to even know where to begin. And just in just a moment, we're going to read through those fruit that Paul names in Galatians 5. And as I read them, I'm just going to invite you, take a moment. And if any of them stick out above the rest as an area of struggle, keeping in mind, of course, they're all interconnected. But if one of them kind of evokes that gut sense of, oof, that's hard for me, just pay attention to that. Trust that that's God's spirit nudging you in a direction. So I invite you now just to to listen. Paul says the fruit of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as you hear those, if one sort of sticks out at you as being kind of difficult in your own story, I'd encourage you to pursue that, get curious about it. Is there a desire or a need that is behind your struggle with self-control or with patience? What would it look like to give up power to that desire in your life, to crucify it, to bring it under the power of something else. Now, chewing on that question, keeping that in mind, we come to this third and really important instruction that Paul offers, and this is my favorite part of this text. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, we do the work of self-reflection to understand what is driving kind of our actions on that level, actions that are misaligned with God's way and God's kingdom. But then instead of turning to various means that we've developed for gratifying those desires, we acknowledge them and we walk a different way. Specifically, we walk by the spirit, by God's spirit. We learn to live in such a way that our mind and our body is no longer controlled by human appetite, but instead God's spirit becomes the primary force and power in us. I was reflecting this week on this idea of walking. I was thinking about Jesus's very first disciples and how they learned to live as Jesus lived. They became fruit bearers by literally walking by Jesus. Over multiple years, they were able to witness how he lived. And as they sort of kept in step with him, I imagine they absorbed his rhythms of prayer of of fasting, of studying and meditating on scripture, of, of taking a Sabbath. They learned, albeit slowly, his own greed as he walked with Jesus, prayed alongside Jesus, saw the life that Jesus brought wherever he went. I picture the fruit slowly taking root and shape in his story as he begins to see his deepest needs are actually met in this person alongside him. He doesn't have to hoard or lie anymore. He is actually free to be generous. I have kind of a long, um, I have long been a fan, I should say, of the organization called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've seen the life-changing power it has had in, in and for people I love. What you might not know is that AA did not actually begin as a way of helping people become free of addiction. It was started by a Lutheran pastor named Frank Buchman. And originally the group formed from a desire to recapture the practices of the first century disciple. It was a group trying to walk by the spirit of Jesus, you could say. 
to lean into the rhythms they saw Jesus embody, to be honest with God through prayer, to, to not only check the tire pressure, but to actually lift up the hood and see what's going on, and then to, to meet God in that tender space. It was a group walking by the Spirit. And part of what this group stumbled upon in the first several years of meeting and engaging these practices is that several folks who were doing this, who were part of this journey, found themselves freed from addiction, particularly alcohol. It was sort of a byproduct of this discipleship way of life. It wasn't until some years later, having noticed this pattern, that the program was codified and offered as what we now have and know. and find that we are eventually able to do the thing that I cannot do today simply by direct effort. I cannot will myself to become a more patient person. I tried. Richard preached on it a couple weeks ago. I went home. I was not patient. We cannot will ourselves there. What I can do is orient my life and my day in such a way to connect with God's spirit that over time, the fruit of this connection is patience embodied in my character. Long before AA came into existence, there was another group uh, founded sometime in the sixth century uh, and they did this. They were called the Benedictines and they still exist. And when a person wishes to become a part of that group, they they make certain vows, um, vows of celibacy, vows of, you know, renouncing all personal property. We will not be making those vows today. Don't worry. But one thing I think we can learn from the Benedictine commitment or vow is around this commitment in particular, daily turning to God. Daily turning to God. The primary vehicles for this turning in the life of the Benedictines were prayer and meditation, Prayer and meditation, prayer simply being conversation with God, a time carved out, a space carved out for you to focus your intention and your mind and your heart on God, prayer. And meditation being the act of intentionally focusing one's mind on a truth about God and his love for me as it's revealed in scripture. That's meditation, going over and over it until it becomes a part of me. Now, this vow of daily turning to God, it's not motivated by a sense of legalism, nor is it an attempt to sort of earn God's favor. In fact, it's a process that's bathed deeply in God's grace. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about change. We're talking about call. And so as we consider what keeping in step with the Spirit looks like in our own stories, these postures of prayer or meditation are a real good place to start. My husband and I are reading a book together right now called Atomic Habits. Um, It's a book about the power of small intentional changes and the power that those habits have in, in kind of influencing greater life change in a person's story. And one of the most helpful parts of this book for me is something that James Clear, who's the author, calls the two minute rule. He says, if you want to make a life change, start not by attempting a major shift but rather by scaling that commitment down to a two-minute habit that is attainable and will orient your life in the direction that you want to go. For instance, he says, if you want to run a marathon, don't start by running 10 miles cold turkey. That's not going to do it. He said, instead, take your shoes, your tennis shoes, put them in a box by your front door, and every day for the coming week, sit down, put those shoes on, tie them up, take those shoes off, put them back in the box said, that is how I train for marathons. But it's small, it's attainable. You you have a place to start and then you go from there. And as we consider walking in the spirit and not the flesh, there is wisdom in this notion of habit formation for us. We start small, two minutes a day, set a timer every day this week. 
prayer or meditation. Turn to God. Try it. If you miss a day, that's no problem. Remember, the whole process is bathed in grace. Try again the next day. If you're not sure how to pray or meditate, we have some great videos online on our Bethany resource page. They will help you get started. And as you do this in the coming week, don't be discouraged if things don't um, immediately change or if you feel even a little bored or distracted. I've been practicing meditation for a while now, and there are still days when I show up to do this and I feel, you know, is it, is it affecting anything in my life? In those moments, it's been helpful for me to think about uh, spiritual practices, a bit like uh, the flight pattern of an airplane. If you're on a plane heading from Seattle to New York, the pilot of that plane upon takeoff would only have to adjust the flight pattern a few degrees and you would land in Washington, D.C. instead of landing in New York. To a passenger on that plane, that shift of just a few degrees would likely not even be felt. It's a a matter of moving the nose of, of the airplane just a few feet. But when you magnify that across the entire United States, those few degrees would cause you to end up hundreds of miles apart. See, the practice of turning to God daily, it might not seem significant in any particular moment, but what we find as we continue in this way is a source of life and growth and power and fruit and goodness that we simply couldn't cultivate on our own. We find as time passes that those small shifts have led to monumental changes like the distance between New York and D.C., I find that instead of responding to others out of my own desire for approval, I'm learning to respond from a grounded assurance in the love of God. I find that I'm less controlled by my passions, my appetites, my knee-jerk responses to people who bug me, and more prone to engage the world as Christ might if he were living in my place. As we close today, I'm going to invite the band back up, and I just want to turn our attention back to the Apostle Paul who writes this letter to the Galatians. See, this this journey of such deeply desired change was very much a part of his story. Prior to encountering Jesus, Paul was a privileged Hebrew with a rabbinic education. He had an aptitude for religion, but there was no fruit in his life. In fact, quite the opposite. There is quite literally death. We read in uh, the first chapter or the first verse of Acts 9, Paul, whose name was Saul then, was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then something happens for Paul. He encounters the risen Jesus while walking along on a road. There's that image again of walking. I love it. And he encounters Christ and the light of Christ is so overwhelming that he falls to the ground and he says, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus says, and I love this, he says, get up, go into the city and I will tell you what to do. Do you see this exchange? In this moment, Paul crucifies his own need for power, his own agenda, his own way of seeing the world. And he sits at the mercy now of what Jesus would have him do. Tell me what to do, he says. Paul gives power, gives his will over to the one worthy of holding it. Paul gives his power. He gives his will over to the only one worthy of holding it. And as he begins to walk in accordance with Jesus's way to receive power from Jesus, to listen to Jesus, the result is fruit in a really deeply broken world. The result is a a life where there had only been death and that life in him starts to bring life all around him to people who are broken, to people who need it. And friends, I love that God chooses Paul of all people to become a life giver and a leader in the early church because here's what we know. 
If the spirit of God can work fruit in Paul's life, Paul the murderer, Paul who commended violence, if joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control can flow from his character of all people, then by God, truly by God, it can flow from ours. So as we close now in worship, I'm going to pray and invite you to spend just a few moments with God and entertain that question. Is there something controlling? Is there a controlling passion that God might be prompting you to crucify, to empty of its power in your life? Sit with that for a minute. And then what might walking with God look like this week in your story? Just two minutes. Just put on the shoes. Two minutes. Start there. So let's bring these questions to God now as we pray. Loving Father, we um, are just aware in this moment that, that you have called us, and yet this journey is impossible without you. God, we thank you that um, we stand in your grace. We stand in your death and resurrection, that there is um, no power that can overcome us in that place. And God, we also acknowledge that change is difficult and that we need you in order to do it. And that, um, well, you do not ask us to earn anything. The work has been done. We are called to put forth effort and to, to do that thoughtfully for the sake of the world. So God, I ask that you would reveal to us what's going on underneath the hood of our lives and our souls. Help us to have the courage to look there, to go there, to maybe consider how we respond to people around us. And then God, do a work in us. Help us to lean more fully into your spirit, to surrender that which does not serve us well. God, we love you. We thank you that you have given us meaning and purpose and direction in this life to be a part of your redeeming work in the world. May we take that very seriously this day with just loads of joy. What an honor to be your children. Amen.